The nation of Yemen has been embroiled in a conflict for almost six years, up to this day as Houthi rebels battled Yemeni government forces and the Saudi Arabian-led coalition of nations for control over the nation. This devastating conflict has caused great famine and pushed the poorest nation in the Middle East to the brink. Labeled the worst humanitarian crisis in the world by the United Nations, the fighting has also destroyed much of Yemen's critical infrastructure. However, in the month of Ramadan, a truce has been organized between the warring parties by the United Nations. What are the potential impacts of this truce, and where the conflict in Yemen might go from here is questions that we will answer today. From Seton Hall University at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation in Yemen today is Abby Kanaus. Hi, Abby. Hello. How are you, Drew? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming on. And focusing on the international aspect today is Jackie Ballard. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Drew. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for coming on. Um, so to begin with, guys, I want to just get into the background of the conflict. So I'll start with the basic question of who are the various sides involved in the conflict, even though I kind of touched on that in the intro. Yes, absolutely. So there is the internationally recognized government of Yemen, uh, and they are fighting against the de facto authorities, also known as, more commonly known as the Houthis. And then there's also the Southern Transitional Council, also referred to as the STC, who are fighting against the de facto authorities and are attempting to succeed from Yemen. And then there's also ISLA, who's trying to become a part of the government of Yemen, and they are religious radicals. I see. So... To focus on like one of the specific sides of the conflict, who are the Houthi rebels in general? Is there different from the government in like religious ways, uh, tribal ways? What's their, uh, why is the reason for the rebellion as well, kind of? Yeah, so the Houthis um, are rebels and the revolution movement started by a local fear of encroachment of Sunni ideologies. So they're just trying to push away from those Sunni ideologies and become and have respect for their own. Yeah, so just to bounce off of that, the Houthi movement is an Islamist political and armed movement that emerged from Sada'a in North Yemen in the 1990s. Specifically, they're backed by Iran, and they control most of northern Yemen, as well as the most populated areas of the country. I see. So they are a Shiite group, correct? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Part of the reason they're backed by Iran as well, is that part of that? Yes, there's religious ties. Okay. Um, so who all is... On the opposing side, who is all part of the Saudi-led coalition? Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, the main actor here is Saudi Arabia with eight other countries in it as well. And just as you mentioned that Iran and the Houthis are a Shiite majority group, these countries are Sunni majority countries, specifically Egypt, Morocco, Jordan, Sudan, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Qatar, and Bahrain. And although this coalition started off as just these nine countries, by 2018, it expanded to include forces from both Eritrea and Pakistan. I see. So it originally started as more Sunni nations across the Middle East, but it has expanded beyond that to a certain extent. Exactly, which just goes to show the changing nature of this conflict. I see. Uh, to get into the changing nature of that conflict, what is like the situation on the ground right now and the balance of power between the two sides? Yeah, so right now the Houthis currently have the upper hand. They have control over 70% of the population, and they have access to more ports and oil rigs, which is helping their economy and their people as well. 
While the people living in the area of the government of Yemen are not able to support their family because their incomes have not been adjusted for it. So economically, the situation is better for the Houthi side than the yes. government side. Um, to add on to that, I have a question of, is it part that the government in Yemen is able to stay in this conflict because of the support from the Saudi-led coalition? Is that the reason they're able to fight off the Houthis? Uh, yes, because of the people that are backing them up and supporting them is what is helping them give an upper hand against the Houthis. If they didn't have any support, then they would be struggling much more than what they are now. I see. Okay. So what are the motivations of the different sides of the conflict? Yes. So the... Who do I even start with? So we have the Houthis. Uh, they currently want to be internationally recognized as a form as a as a proper government. Uh, they also do not want to be labeled as a terrorist group, which the government of Yemen is attempting to label them as. Nothing has been determined on that front. They also uh, want to be able to support their own people and want to stop relying on humanitarian aid, which which will also give them advantage through this civil war. The government of Yemen does not want to be seen as anything less than an organized government, so they are trying to bring down the Houthis and bring them back into the government of Yemen into the into control. And then earlier I had mentioned the SCT. Uh, they want to succeed from Yemen. They hold more democratic ideals and are considered uh, socialist. They remain divided in terms of organization, strategy, leadership, and ultimate aims. The SDC also controls a lot of lands, which makes them important to the situation. But the Saudi coalition intervention initially consisted of a bombing campaign of Houthi rebels and later a naval blockade and the deployment of ground forces into Yemen supporting the government of Yemen. I see. So there's a lot of different sides to this conflict with different goals, whether that be to unite the people of Yemen or to secede from the Yemeni government's control. Yes. Do you have anything to add on to that, Jackie? No, Abby. I think you covered that perfectly. Okay. So let's go into a little bit of the composition of the recent truce in Yemen. So what are some of the specific provisions of the truce itself? Yeah, so first of all, I think it's important to get a little background, noting that the UN has been involved with this conflict since its beginning and even prior to that. And there have been multiple truces posed throughout the conflict that have just failed or fell through in some way, which is what makes this truce so significant. It's important to note that it is an informal and effectively self-policing agreement, meaning that although the United Nations has a role and has helped to broker the truce, that it is held particularly between the government of Yemen and the Houthi rebels. And there are three main parts to this truce. First of all, that all offensive military air, ground, and maritime operations inside Yemen are stopped. Secondly, that fuel ships are now allowed to enter into Yemeni ports and that commercial flights are allowed to operate inside and out of the Sana'a airport. And third of all, that roads in Taiz and other governorates in Yemen will now be opened. That's part of what makes this truce so significant is not just the stopping to violence, but that the hope that it provides for humanitarian aid and for the United Nations. I see. So... That was kind of leading into my next question of, does this truce allow for the delivery of humanitarian aid? Because it's been mentioned before of the humanitarian crisis currently in the nation. Yes. So that is one of the United Nations goals in producing this truce is for allowing more humanitarian aid. However, as I mentioned before, because the United Nations isn't specifically policing this truce, that means that it's essentially up to the Houthis and to the Yemeni government how much aid will be given. 
And the main priority of this truce is a halt to all offensive military actions. I see. So it is a self-policing agreement between the two sides. Exactly. And because of that, that doesn't guarantee for humanitarian aid. Yep. If that humanitarian aid has managed to come through and both sides hold to the terms of the truce, do you think this will aid in abetting somewhat the crisis in the nation? I think that it will. That's something that the United Nations has been very upfront with about the whole situation in Yemen. I'm sure we've all heard that this has been called the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. And because of that, the United Nations has really been putting all efforts forth to aid this crisis. And that's why this truce is seen as significant in being able to stop that. Because once peace is achieved, that means that more concrete steps toward humanitarian assistance can be taken. I see. So can we consider this truce significant just because of the way in which it's done something that other truces haven't done in the past? Or is it just one bright spot in what is currently going on in the region and the country? No, so I actually have hope that this truce is the beginning of the end. And a lot of other analysts have echoed that as well, saying that this truce is different because we have seen no signs so far of a break of the truce. And that because it's over a specific period, it started on April 1st, which is the beginning of the holy month of Ramadan, and it extends for a two-month period, so it will extend all the way until the end of May. That means that there's more concrete opportunities for talks instead of just providing an indefinite period of time. And so far, we have seen no civilian casualties and a reduction in violence, and both parties are working toward using Sana'a airports again and opening roads in Taiz. So I think that this provides a way forward, hopefully to the end of the Yemen conflict. I see. Um, there is definite room for hope then. I also want to examine deeper the role of the United Nations, because you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the foundation of this truce, Jackie, that the United Nations has been involved in this conflict since the beginning. So how has the United Nations been involved in the conflict in Yemen, specifically? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as we mentioned, the rebellion itself, where President Hadi was overthrown, happened in 2015. However, the United Nations has actually been involved before this. Specifically, in 2013, they convened a delegation to formulate a new constitution that was agreeable to Yemen's many factions. However, it failed. And that seems to have been the theme of the United Nations throughout this whole conflict, is that they have been providing aid, including cholera vaccines, food, commodities, and health services. However, besides the humanitarian aid that they've been able to provide, their truces and agreements that they've provided haven't made much of a difference. And over the past, about over the past year, they have been pushing in a more significant way to be able to stop the violence, especially due to the fact that because of COVID, aid from other countries has been lessening. So this crisis has been, this crisis has been growing worse, which is why they've been more involved. Mm -hmm. Would it be safe to say that the United Nations has led the process of trying to deliver humanitarian aid into the country throughout the conflict? Yes, that is very safe. According to the UN Refugee Agency, two-thirds of Yemenis require humanitarian aid, and four million of these are internally displaced persons. And because of that concern, we've seen that the UN has been giving food rations, as I mentioned before, health and cholera aid, 
And since the beginning of the crisis, they have been on the front lines of providing aid in a very concrete way. I see. So even though the UN has not experienced much success in mediating the conflict until this recent truce, they've been at the forefront of trying to provide aid to the people of the region to lessen their impact of the war that is currently affecting the people. Yes, that is true. And we can see that right now under Hans Grunberg, who is the special envoy of the Secretary General for Yemen. He raised an alarm about the safety of civilians in the war-torn area, especially considering the escalating violence. And under Grunberg, they plan to reach a permanent ceasefire, address urgent economic and humanitarian measures, and resume the political process. I see. I also want to spread this just beyond the role of the United Nations and take a look at the broader international reaction to the conflict from certain nations itself. So how has the United States in particular reacted and positioned itself with regard to the conflict in Yemen? Yeah, so specifically we back the Yemeni government. Since 2000, the United States has provided Yemen with over $850 in military aid, and we've seen that as being the theme since the beginning of the war. We backed the Saudi coalition specifically by selling them weapons as well as providing intelligence and logistical support. However, the tide has been shifting over the past few years, especially due to the controversy over civilian deaths in the coalition air campaigns, which unfortunately use U.S.-made weapons, which has been lessening U.S. support. That kind of leads into the next question I was going to ask Jackie. Has there any been any political opposition in the United States to the support for the Saudi-led coalition? Yes, there has. Specifically in 2021, in opposition to Saudi Arabia's offensive operations in the civil war, Representative Ilhan Omar introduced a joint resolution to block the sale of $650 million worth of U.S. weapons to Saudi Arabia, citing humanitarian concerns. And I think that pretty well represents the United States' political attitude towards Saudi Arabia right now in general especially considering Saudi Arabia's role in the 2018 Jamal Khashoggi killing and our role in the civilian deaths in Yemen. I see. So the relationship between the United States and the Saudi Arabia has been deteriorating in part because of uh, internal matters in Saudi Arabia, but also uh, the Saudi-led coalition's actions in Yemen itself. Exactly. And that has even taken more concrete action under President Biden In fact, he expressed a desire to get out of the war, and in 2021, under the Biden administration, the U.S. ended support for coalition offensive operations and revoked a terrorist designation on the Houthis. Beyond the United States, how has the European allies of the United States, particularly in Western Europe, supported the Saudi coalition? Have they supported the coalition, or do they have their own concerns? Mm -hmm. So as to be expected with the United States being a leader of the Western world, the other Western nations have followed suit in supporting the Saudi coalition, specifically France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. However, recently, as we've witnessed this truce coming about, the entire United Nations issued a statement in support of this truce. However, over the past few years of the conflict, especially due to covid We've seen that Western support has lessened because they're limiting weapon sales and refueling of coalition aircrafts. So would it be safe to say that as the crisis has worsened in the region and the ramping up of the airstrikes by the Saudi-led coalition, that support for this coalition has waned in the West? Yes, exactly. I think that 
it has dragged on for too long where western powers are looking for a way to get out instead of pouring more time money and resources into this conflict that they see as messy and inevitable which is a fair estimation of where the conflict has gone to a certain extent exactly i also want to direct attention back to the domestic side of this conflict and ask you some questions abby as the domestic analyst more on the environmental impact of this conflict and the humanitarian crisis itself. There's been notes made of humans' particular vulnerability to climate change. Do you have anything you can say on that matter? Absolutely. So Yemen is highly vulnerable to climate change related impacts such as drought, extreme flooding, pest, sudden disease outbreaks, changes in rainfall patterns, increased storm frequency and severity, and sea level rise. These are serious concerns as Yemen's economy largely depends on its rural natural resources. I see. Which parts and sectors of Yemen have been most affected by the conflict, whether that be environmentally or humanitarian-wise? Yeah, so it's affected their economy um, in a very drastic way because the lands that they have used to to fight um, have been used in the war. There have been airstrikes on them. So the their land that they previously used to farm on is no longer usable, making it very difficult for them to have, to be able to have internal food supply for themselves. So that's what makes having the ports so important in this war is because most of it has to be coming from outside sources. You mentioned the ports specifically. Is it true that the Saudi Arabian blockade of Yemen's ports has worsened significantly the humanitarian crisis in the, in the country? Absolutely. And as I was just As I just stated, there's an internal struggle of getting their own resources, so they're really just relying on aid and um, shipments coming in through the ports, and that's just what makes it such a stronghold to have ports in the Civil War. So I wanted to ask you specifically, Abby, we mentioned the blockade earlier by Saudi Arabia of Yemen's ports. How has this affected the humanitarian crisis in Yemen itself? Yes. So um, pushing Saudi Arabia to end a blockade on the coast of Yemen It has prevented fuel tankers from entering Hodeidah, the main port and access point for humanitarian aid to flow into the country. The last stronghold of the government of Yemen is the Marib port for their suppliers. The blockades are a military advantage point, but it is making the people suffer by not having enough food and water, causing thousands to die of starvation. Also caused more than half of the medical centers were closed. So the civilians that are being hurt by the Civil War are having trouble finding proper care. So that's why it was important for the blockades itself to be addressed in the truce. Going further into this, I wanted to talk about the long term is the damage caused by this conflict to the country itself. Yes, there's many different varieties to it. For example, we can start with looking at the growing number of children becoming soldiers. The Houthis have fiercely denied this. but the, the existence of children soldiers in Yemen is an open secret. And to give an example, there is a young boy who has tested out his new prosthetic leg by jumping on a mine. He dreams of, uh, of only one thing, returning to the front. The boy has said that his age is 18 in army records, but one of his comparants said his real age was 13. The boy listens in a loop the Holthi's patriotic song on his phone. And when asks why he went to fight, the boy's answer comes quickly for jihad, Jihad, of course, the holy war against the Saudi aggressor. 
Um, and of course, these actions have helped the Houthis secure power, but this long-term effect will, especially just the kid losing his leg, is definitely a long-term effect. The, the Another aspect of it is uh, there's also the cholera epidemic. The Red Cross suspects more than 7,500,000 have already been infected and severe diarrhea is on the rise. Yemen as well, Yemen has also identified three main sectors that are vulnerable to climate change, which is water resources, agriculture, and coastal zones. And then just in addition, uh, in recent days, the number of patients hospitalized has been decreasing. This is uh, this is not good news. The blockade has already caused the price of gas to soar, meaning people in the remote areas can no longer get to the hospital. So we have a worsening health situation as the hospitals are not being able to treat the patients that need that medical care. Um, the manipulation of children into turning into child soldiers and, of course, epidemics throughout the region. Yes. Which does not paint a very pretty picture of the situation on the ground, which is why it's important that this truce has come about by the United Nations. So to kind of summarize, guys, the thoughts that we've talked about in this section, one, one of my final questions I want to ask is, do you think this truce will hold over the month of Ramadan between the two sides? I think that it will, both from the response that we've seen within the Yemeni government, within the Saudi coalition, and within the United Nations have been overwhelmingly positive, saying that this truce is different, especially considering that there have been no signs of the truce breaking so far, no violence, and only progressive efforts for peace. I see. Do you have anything to add on to that as well, Abby? I think I'm going to go ahead and agree with Jackie. Yeah. And then I think the more important question here is, do you think that this truce can lead to a larger peace agreement in Yemen between the different sides of the conflict? I do believe that it can lead to a larger peace agreement just because they're building a proper foundation now to be able to trust each other, especially if this truce lasts. And if they're able to just continue to build trust, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be able to lead to a peace agreement. Yeah, and just to add on to that, I think we've seen that this peace agreement is beginning now. As of April 7th, actually, President Hadi, who is, who was the president of Yemen before he was ousted by the Houthi rebellion, has ceded his power to an eight-member presidential council that was actually established to run the Saudi government and lead negotiations with the Houthi rebels. And this is a way for Saudi Arabia to get out of the war, but it's also a way for the war to be able to end in general because it's meant to unify the Saudi coalition after years of infighting and disputes. Is there any more on that the council has said of like developments of towards looking towards the peace agreement? Yeah, exactly. So the reason that this council was established is for peace, and it represents hope for the future, specifically because Saudi Arabia is tired of this conflict. They're looking for a way to get out. And actually, a senior analyst at the International Crisis Group, Peter Salisbury, said that, quote, there is a sense that without some big changes, the Houthis would eventually win the war. And this is the big change that we're looking for. So because one side, the Houthis are believed long-term will be able to sustain and win the conflict, the Saudi Arabians want to get out of the conflict now with their heads held high as having negotiated a truce rather than being driven out of Yemen itself. Exactly, and that seems to be the prevailing sentiment of the conflict right now is that it is time to get out. This conflict has been going on for too long and there's too much suffering, especially for the people and civilians of Yemen, 
to let this continue any longer. Mm-hmm. Would this be, in a sense, I know we're getting towards the final questions of this, would this be, in a sense, damaging to Saudi Arabia because there's been a feeling that the Yemen conflict in Yemen is also a proxy conflict between the two major powers and the two major powers in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia and Iran, which supports the Houthis. Does that change anything of the sense of is this conflict coming to an end? So I don't believe that any country likes to lose a war. And I think that Saudi Arabia thinks that if they are to continue this war, that they would lose, which is why they're trying to get out now. Because, as you mentioned, this is a way for them to still salvage peace and salvage their pride. But as we've mentioned throughout this entire episode, Western nations are getting tired. The United Nations is getting tired. The United States is getting tired of this conflict. And because of the lessening Saudi support, this is a very good step for them to take to regain the remaining support they have and end the conflict. And we could see that they are taking concrete steps toward ending it, specifically by pledging $3 billion in economic support and $2 billion to deposit into Yemen's central bank. So real steps are being taken to end this conflict. And we can hope that more steps are being taken towards a permanent peace agreement in the region. This has been a great discussion. Abby, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us, guys. Thank you, Drew. Thank you. Joining me now to round out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Joshua Axton. Hi, Joshua. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So what headlines do you have for us this week? Well, first, the U.S. is expressing alarm over reports of unlawful detentions in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, and Zelensky is seeking peace talks despite atrocities in Ukraine. Some very important topics to cover today, then. Let's start with the situation in Ethiopia. Well, the United States has called for the ending of unlawful detentions of ethnic minorities in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have reported abuses amounting to crimes against humanity and war crimes. The UN Commission of Experts on Human Rights in Ethiopia has continued to urge for cooperation to hold individuals accountable. Definitely a situation that will require monitoring in the future by the international community and human rights organizations. And you mentioned the ongoing peace talks with Ukrainian President Zelensky? Well, President Zelensky stated that he's actively seeking diplomatic solutions to the ongoing Russian-Ukrainian war, despite war crimes perpetrated against Ukrainian civilians. The most recent of these was the strike against the Kramatorsk train station, resulting in the death of 52 civilians. Zelensky said, quote, We have to fight, but fight for life. You can't fight for dust when there's nothing and no people. That is why it's important to stop this war. End quote. Thank you so much for coming on, Joshua. That is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jared Dang, associate producers Jasmine DeLeon and Hamza Khan, technical producer Andrew Rakulia, and of course your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.